morning, church family. I get to say good morning to all of you as you got to turn and say good morning to everyone else. It is a sweet thing to be gathered as the people of God and to now have the opportunity to study His Word. As we prepare to get into it, I brought a little show-and-tell item this morning. Uh, it's not the healthiest-looking um, thing in the world, but anybody, can you tell what this is and what I broke this off from? What was that? Uh, this is Ice Plant. Now, when I was nine years old, my family and I, we moved from... Uh, the suburbs of Chicago to Southern California, to Escondido. Um, my folks have been in the same home uh, since we uh, moved here. And when we moved to California, I encountered ice plant for the first time. We don't have ice plant in the Midwest. It doesn't grow. It dies. Uh, it would die in the winter. But um, the property that my parents uh, had purchased, the home that they had, it was covered in ice plant. The front slope was covered in ice plant. I came to understand that ice plant was great for ground cover, helps with erosion uh, control. And when we saw that the ice plant, it was, it was green pretty much all year round. So it was actually really quite lovely uh, in the summer, and then in the winter it stayed green, and then we came to spring, and the flowers began to bloom on the ice plant, and it was really uh, quite beautiful. But then something happened that following spring. We had moved to California in May. That next spring, something happened with the ice plant, and that is weeds began to grow up in between the ice plant. Now, as ground cover, it's great, but, but my dad noticed that the weeds were growing up in between the ice plant, and in, you know, Illinois, if there were weeds in the yard, you would just go and you would pick the weeds. Well, that front slope, which is probably a little less than half an acre covered in ice plant, soon became covered in ice plant and weeds. And so one day, my dad called my brothers and I outside. I was talking to my brother Todd about this. He claims he was there. I have no recollection that he was. But uh, he says, he is, you can talk to him about that. But, but we go out there, and my dad says, boys, you, you see the ice plant? You see the slope? You see the hill? I need you to pick the weeds out of the ice plant. Now, I'm like 9, 10 at this point. Uh, my brothers are just a little older than me, and, and we're looking at the slope, and we're looking at the ice plant, and the amount of weeds, we're thinking, this is crazy. This is going to take forever. Dad, you've given us an impossible task, and then we start trying to weed and start trying to pick the weeds out of the ice plant, and my dad, who's very particular, he always wants to make sure that we get the weeds all the way down to the root, right? Don't just pick off the top because then the weeds are going to grow right back, so we're trying to do that. After about 15, 20 minutes, like we've covered like a square foot, the three of us, right? And so then we begin our negotiations. More or less, we begin our whining and our moaning, and we begin saying, this is impossible. We just can't do it. Dad, look it. You know, I, I think we might have even invited him to get down and try it you know, with us. And eventually, by the grace and mercy of our God in heaven, my dad says, you're right, this is just, it's not going to happen. I'm going to let you guys use the weed eater and you can weed eat, weed eat the, the ice plant. We were so grateful because we came to see that the task he had given us was impossible to do. And then my dad, in his wisdom and mercy, discovered that, yes, the task was impossible. So we were relieved from picking the weeds out of the ice plant. Now, I don't know about you, but that hasn't been the only scenario in my life where I was faced with a task that, to me, seemed somewhat impossible. I was given something that I felt like, you know, I just, I, I don't have the capabilities to, to pull this thing off. And maybe you found yourself in a scenario where somebody asked something of you or expected something of you, and you just thought, I just can't do it. 
Well, today we come to a story in the book of Daniel where we have a group of individuals that are faced with this situation. And what we're going to discover in this story is that one group of individuals, they look at the impossible situation that they're in and they throw up their hands and say, we just can't do it. But then there's this other group that comes and says, you know what, I, I think we got a chance at this. I, I think we can actually do this. And so to find this story, I invite you to open up your Bibles to Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2. Daniel's in the Old Testament. It's, it's close to the end of the Old Testament. Find the book of Ezekiel, keep going to your right, and eventually you'll come to Daniel. And as you turn there, um, we've started this new sermon series in the book of Daniel. We began it last week, and I said a couple of things that are important to, to remember. Number one, Daniel was written to the Jewish people while they were living in captivity, while they were living as exiles in Babylon. And the person that wrote this was the best person to write it, it was Daniel. He was the best person to write to the Israelites in captivity because he himself had gone through that captivity. And so he writes this book inspired by God for the purpose of ultimately bringing encouragement and instruction to a people living in exile as well as to give them hope. And so the first part of the book up through chapter 7 is a record, if you will, of of Daniel's captivity and what he went through. And then all of a sudden the book switches into some prophecy that is ultimately written to the people of God to give them hope. And one of the things we said last week is that we can have this temptation to look at a book like this and say it doesn't apply to us. It's written to people who are in geopolitical captivity. That's not my situation. But the truth is God's people continue to be, even today, in and through Jesus Christ, the people who are in exile. We are called sojourners. We are called exiles. This world is ultimately not our home the way that it is. And so as much as this book was written to geopolitical exiles, and I would say as well spiritual exiles, being in a pagan land, the message of this book also pertains to us. And, and specifically, the story today, as a group of individuals are faced with an impossible situation, we're going to learn from this. We're going to learn really two key truths I'm going to get to at the very end that ultimately cause our hearts to say when we're faced with an impossible situation, not trying to pick weeds out of a yard that would take years to do, but faced with a situation like a cancer diagnosis, like a child who's living in rebellion, a situation where we've lost our job and we don't know where to turn to or what's going to come about, this story God gives to us to bring some hope. So here we go. I'm going to go through the first part of the story. Chapter 2 is a long chapter. We're only going to look at the first part of it today, and then we'll pick up the next part next week. But here we go. Verse 1. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. These are the things in the Bible that I really love, where we can connect with the people. Because any of you ever had a bad dream that you woke up from, and you felt like, ah, oh, I, I didn't like that. that. That left me trouble. A few weeks ago, a friend of mine, he said, Dave, I, I just got to tell you, I had this crazy dream. I was playing center field for the Cubs. And all of a sudden, I just, in my dream, boom, I'm in center field. I'm like, whoa, I'm in Wrigley Field. The ball's hit. And it comes to me, and I drop it, and I woke up. And he said, that's, that's all I've been thinking about. That's all I've been thinking about. And then, I don't know if it's the, the, you know, God with a sense of humor, but this morning, I wake up last night, I have a dream, uh, and Hannah and I had gotten in a fight. We've been married almost 19 years. I can count on one hand the number of times we actually raised our voices. We're not a perfect couple, don't get me wrong. We just know like, hey, that's just not a place that we go. So I wake up, I'm like, why were you so angry with me last night, right? And she's like, I didn't fight you. I'm like, in my dream you did. And so like, I, I, 
And, and even today, like as I was getting ready, she, she's, she's like, do you think I'm still angry at you? I'm like, it was just a dream. I know, I know it wasn't real. But you get troubled. Like I really woke up and, I, and you went, okay, here we go. I'll give you the full story. <laughs> so I have this dream and, and I'm, I'm just wondering if God's just like, I want to give you an illustration, Dave. And so I have the dream. I wake up. You, some of you are going to be like, oh, and others are going to be like, oh. I, I wake up and I look over at Hannah and she opens her eyes and she just smiles at me. Uh, and I'm just like, I'm like, oh, it was just a dream. It was just a dream. She, she does love me. All right. Here we go, verse 2. The king, then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dream. So they came in and stood before the king. Dreams in the ancient world were really, really big deal. You see, for the ancient people, dreams were a way that they thought that the gods would communicate with them or that they could predict the future through dreams. There were these whole educational systems that were built around training people in the interpretation of dreams. So all these guys that are listed here, these magicians, sorcerers, you're like, what? There's Harry Potter in the Bible? No. Okay. These guys are just people that were trained in, for lack of better terms, kind of like the dark arts, like these false pagan religions. And we actually have textbooks that date back to this period of time textbooks that were given to people as far as how to interpret dreams. And in these textbooks, it said, like, if you had lightning in your dream, it meant this. If there was water in your dream, you meant this. If there was a buffalo in your dream, it meant, meant this. So this is what these guys were trained in. And so Nebuchadnezzar has on his payroll people who are trained to help with this very specific type of situation. And do you know who one of the people who was trained in this actually was? We learned this last week, Daniel. Daniel and his friends received this kind of training. Now, they're not here at this moment. They weren't called in for some reason. But it says in verse 3, And the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show you the interpretation. Like, this is the, the transaction. This is how it worked. We know you're troubled. You tell us a dream. We give you the interpretation. And so we're expecting that that's what's going to happen, that the king is going to give them the dream. But I want to pause here, and I want to just hit on an apologetic point for, for a moment, kind of a defense of the faith. You see, there's this little phrase that's mentioned in verse 4 that it says that, then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in what? What does it say? Aramaic. Now, if you know your Old Testament Bible, the original language that it was written in was, anybody? Anybody? Hebrew. That's a predominant language that the Old Testament was written in. That was the language of the Jewish people. The New Testament, written in Greek. But something happens here. From Daniel 2.4 on through Daniel chapter 7, the book changes from being written in Hebrew to Aramaic. And then it flips back to Hebrew in chapter 8 to the end of the book. Now, a lot of people have questioned the historicity of this book. And I feel like I need to tell you this, church, because as we're studying this, you might hear over time, oh, the book of Daniel, you know, you can't trust it. It was written at a much later date. And part of the reason why people believe it was written at a later date, part of the reason people question the historicity of it, it was up through the 18th, 19th, and even part of the 20th century, there was very little archaeological evidence to prove that the people that Daniel wrote about actually existed. But then, as typically happens, the more people dig and the more they discover, we began to find that actually the names, the places mentioned in the book of Daniel, they did exist. And so, so for the last century, only archaeology has come to prove that, no, no, like 
Daniel was at least truthful on the people that existed, but then what about the historicity? When we come to the prophecies in chapters 8 and following, some of these prophecies are so accurate that people said there's no way that somebody could have written these prophecies before they happened. But then we have what happens here. You see, when you look at the book of Daniel and you see all of a sudden Daniel switches from writing in Hebrew to Aramaic, people say, why does he do that? If it was written by Daniel, well, here's the deal. Chapters 2 through 7, they involve historical events that happened to the people in Babylon. And so if you're trying to communicate to the people that you're living in their history, it would make sense that he would have written that part in Aramaic. And then the last part of the book, which has to do with the prophecies for the people of Israel, he would have written in Hebrew. But there's even more to it than that. You see, only somebody who would have actually understood both Aramaic and, and Hebrew, who, who lived these things out, would have written the book in this way because from the time of Israel's captivity, when they returned from exile, the main language spoken by the people of the world, including Jesus in the New Testament, was Aramaic. There would have been no reason for a later writer of the book of Daniel to have written this book in Aramaic, or I mean in Hebrew. It would have made no sense because the language of the people at that time was Aramaic, so that's what you would have written it in if you wanted to communicate it. Instead, we believe this book was written by Daniel because he was somebody who was trained in both Hebrew and Aramaic. And so external evidence and internal evidence of the book says, listen, this wasn't a book written later. This was a book written by Daniel to these people at a specific time. It's just important for us to consider these little things that are mentioned in the Bible, these little things that happen. I think God drops them in there to, to help our confidence in his word. But let's get back to the story. The guys have asked, they said, tell us your dream, we'll give you the interpretation. And so what happens? The king does something completely out of left field. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, the word for me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. Oh, but if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive gifts from me and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and the interpretation. What Nebuchadnezzar does here is just completely out of the norm. He looks at them and he says, I'm not going to do what we've done in the past. I'm not telling you the dream. You guys have to figure out what my dream was, and then you have to tell me its interpretation. Now, the wise men who are there, they kind of take that in, and I, and I think that they maybe don't clearly understand him, um, or, or they just want to seek some clarity, because look what they say in verse 7. They come back to him, and they, they say to him these words. They answer it a second time, let the king tell his servant the dream, and we will show you its interpretation. Like, king, that's the way that this thing is supposed to work, right? The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you're trying to gain time because you see that the word for me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream one more time, and I shall know that you can show me the interpretation. Friends, it's here that we encounter the impossible situation. The king of Babylon has come to them and has said, Listen, I've had this dream. It troubles me greatly. You need to tell me the dream and its interpretation. And these guys... 
They hear him once and they say, wait, you can't be saying what we think you're saying. Just tell us a dream. He comes back and he says, the word is firm. And in response to this, look at what the Chaldeans say. Verse 10, king, there's not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. They come to him and they say, you want to just know what you're asking of us, how impossible it is? He says, listen, nobody, no human being can do what you're asking. On top of that, then they try and kind of like butter him up or something. They say, say, listen, you're like a great wise king. You know, you realize you'd be the first king to ever ask anybody to do this. Like, is that a good idea? And then they finally come and they say, and, and, and by the way, like unless you've got a direct access to the gods, you're not going to get what you're looking for. They're, they're, they're making their final plea to the king. And it has zero impact on him. Look at verse 12. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out and the wise men were about to be killed. And by the way, we haven't heard about one person up to this point. Who haven't we heard of? Daniel. But who also was considered a wise man? Daniel and his friends. And so it says, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Look at what happens. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? We don't know where Daniel was. It sounds like maybe he was at home. He finds out about this. Arioch shows up to kill him and his friends. Daniel's like, wait, wait, what, what's going on? Why is this so urgent? What, what's got him all wound up? Arioch then tells him the situation and what's going on. And then verse 16. Daniel does something that is really peculiar. And Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Now, the wise men of Babylon had been very clear. We can't do what you're asking. This is impossible for us. That's not the response of Daniel. Daniel, for some reason, thinks that he could potentially pull off what the king has, has asked. Now, why does he think that? Well, we find our answer in verse 17. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek Mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. The wise men of Babylon said, this can't be done. Daniel comes and he says, give us more time. And then we see why, because Daniel, as we're going to learn, believed in his heart of hearts that with man which was impossible, with God it was possible. And so he goes and he beseeches his friends to seek the face of God that they might find mercy. And verse 19 says, God delivers. The mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. And listen to what he says. Rather than running off immediately to Nebuchadnezzar to save his own skin, 
he stops and he praises God. And this prayer of praise is profound. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise for you have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we asked of you for you have made known to us the king's matter. Therefore, Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king and I will show the king the interpretation. And now this to me is a profound thing. Daniel's in a pagan land. He's surrounded by all these pagan wise men. And yet one of the things that he requests is that if, if what he's about to do works, that not only would God not destroy him and his companions, but also wouldn't destroy the rest of the Babylonian wise men. You want to talk about eliminating your competition? This was his opportunity. This was his opportunity. And you know what's going to happen later? These same wise men whose skin he saves, they're going to turn on him. And they're going to seek both his death and the death of his friends. But he goes in. (laughs) I love this. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar in Babylonian, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Listen to what happens next. Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show the king the mystery the king has asked. Now, I can just imagine Ariok's face, right? (laughs) Right in that moment, he's like, what? You said that you could do this. I brought you before the king, and you're telling him nobody can do what he has asked? He's like, Ariok, he's like, his head's going to be on a platter. But, look at this, verse 28, Daniel says, But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries and has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the later days, your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. You're right, king. Nobody can do what you've asked, but our God can Now, next week, we're going to come and we're going to look at the vision, the dream, and its interpretation. But there are two very profound truths that the story up to this point want to proclaim to your heart and to my heart. You see, it's all summed up in what Daniel says here before the king. When Daniel comes before the king, he makes known that there is no way that human beings can do what Nebuchadnezzar has asked. And with that statement, Daniel is wanting to make abundantly clear a truth that I think most of us in this room would initially find pretty obvious. Are you ready for it? It's this. As humans, we are limited in our knowledge and abilities. As humans, we are limited in our knowledge and abilities. Human beings have their limitations, and it was put on full display right here. 
Like there's this line that comes up to it. The, the wise men of Babylon thought that they were capable of a lot of different things, especially when it came to dreams. But one thing they knew that they could not do was be able to read somebody's mind. They were confronted with the fact that they're not omnipotent nor omniscient. And as I said, this truth probably comes as a zero surprise to most people here today. If it doesn't, I'll be right over there after the service. Let's talk about it a little bit, okay? But you know where we sometimes demonstrate that we don't think we have limitations? I don't know about you guys. I'm talking to the men here for a moment. But as we get older, there were things that we were able to lift, things that we were able to do. And in our mind, as we get older, we think that we can still do those things. My little nine-year-old climbed into bed at four in the morning with me two weeks ago, and my neck is tweaked right now, right? Like I'm like RoboCop. Like I can only turn like this right now. We think, or at least we often function, as though we don't have limitations, but it's not just physically. In our day-to-day lives, we depend so much on our knowledge, on our strength, on our positions. We'd all agree that this is true, that we have our limitations, but where do those limitations begin? Have you heard recently about this thing called the power of manifesting? Have you heard about this, manifesting? Well, you probably have without knowing about it. Those of us maybe of a, of a later generation and even before my time might remember the power of positive thinking. Have you ever heard of that? The power of manifesting is just the power of positive thinking wrapped up in a new bow spoken by different lips. It's this idea, well, let me just tell you what, a, what one boy said about it. I say a boy, he's a young man, he's in his 20s. <laughs> he's a boy. <clears throat> in her article in the New York Times, um, Ruth LaFarala, she wrote about this, this idea of the power of, of manifesting. And, and it's summarizing the story of this one young man. He says, I never told anyone, but I wanted these toys when I was a kid so bad. They were the Power Ranger flipheads. I sat in my room as a nine-year-old holding this scenario in my head of how I would feel when I got them. In her article, she quotes him as saying, he had in his, in his new age tinctature phrase launched his dreams into the universe, and as he tells it, the universe heeded the call. He said, the very next day, my dad got me the flip heads. That's when I realized that there was something to this. The idea of of thinking and literally willing something into existence. This has become hugely popular. One of the biggest proponents of this is the great Oprah Winfrey, all right? It's it's this idea of almost a non-religious name it and claim it. Some false some false preachers have picked up on it. Joel Osteen is one of the, one of the guys who's picked up on this. This idea that, that if you just send positive thoughts into the universe, if you can just visualize something, it will come back to you. And so while most people will acknowledge the fact that we have our limitations, one of the things that people cling to is this idea of if we just, if we just try hard enough, if we just think hard enough, we can get what we ultimately want The truth is, you and I know we have our limitations. We have our limitations. We're not all that we believe that we're made up 
to be. Sometimes you're confronted with something where you realize, I have no power over this situation. My ability and my capabilities, my knowledge is lacking. Often it hits us with our health. Sometimes it hits us in broken relationships. How did this thing come apart? No matter what I try, I just can't put it back together. All the king's horses and all the king's men, they couldn't put Humpty Dumpty back together again. And you and I encounter these situations in our lives where we're confronted with the truth. But we often don't function like we believe in our limitations. And you know how I know that? Well, look at Nebuchadnezzar in this story for a minute. Most people, when they read the story of Daniel chapter 2, they don't relate with Nebuchadnezzar. They don't relate with Nebuchadnezzar because he has this dream, and maybe we relate with that, but then all of a sudden, he asks people to do something for him, and when they're not able to do it, he just goes off of his rocker, and we see this over-the-top reaction of Nebuchadnezzar. First off, asking them to interpret, not just interpret his dream, but tell him his dream, and then we see him get angry when he asks people to do something that are, that's impossible for them, and we think, okay, maybe he had a few screws loose. Maybe Nebuchadnezzar was just a really bad person. Maybe he had an axe to grind against these wise men. And those could all be reasons, but I don't believe that's the case at all. You see, if you know Nebuchadnezzar and you see how the rest of his life plays out, what we can say about Nebuchadnezzar is this. He was a man with all the power, with all the fame. He was building an empire at that time. He was building gardens in Babylon that would be known as one of the wonders of the world. Everything that he touched, this is going to come out next week, seems to turn to gold. He has this, this wisdom, this, this power. Everything seems to bend to Nebuchadnezzar's rule. But then he has a dream, a tiny little dream. And he can't figure it out for himself. And then the people that he hires to actually do this, they can't give him what he wants. And Nebuchadnezzar becomes undone. Have you ever seen somebody in your life respond to a situation that you felt was a little bit over the top? Who had an anger, an outburst, that you think, man, that's not commensurate to the situation. Have you yourself ever found yourself responding to that? Where you can look back and say, whoa, um, yeah, I'm sorry, my behavior, that just, that just wasn't merited. Friends, we're all Nebuchadnezzar. All of us in our lives have displayed an anger or an anxiety when we have been confronted with the fact that we are limited in our abilities. When we have discovered that we don't have the power and the control that we think we do. As I was looking at the story this week, I came across this, and this is for you in your notes. As humans, we're limited in our knowledge and abilities, and we display anger and anxiety when we function as though this were not true. You want to know whether or not you're failing to understand your limited capacity as a person? You, you want to know when you are living as though you are in control? Look for the fruit of anger and look for the fruit of anxiety in your life. If you are ruled by anger, if you're being ruled by fear, what is being exposed in your heart and my heart in those moments are the fact that we think that we shouldn't be thwarted, that we shouldn't be limited in what we can do, that we actually have the power. And yet Nebuchadnezzar literally flies off his rocker 
because in this one area of his life, he realizes he doesn't have the power, he doesn't have the knowledge, he doesn't have the ability that he thought that he had. And so I'm just curious this morning, before we move on, what are you trusting in today? Are, are you able to sit back with me and be like, Dave, yeah, no, I, I understand my limitations. I, 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 I get that. But are you consumed by anger? Is there something in your life that you're just, you can't be free from anxiety over? This story is a story that comes to us and says, here's one of the truths if you don't understand your limitations, if you don't understand um, the fact that you're not in control, you're going to see the fruit of anger. You're going to see the fruit of fear. A temptation of those people living in spiritual exile is to be consumed with anger, to be consumed with anxiety because we don't have control. Daniel is telling us, he's saying, listen, even the mightiest king, even for the mightiest king, control is an illusion. We are limited, but that's not all Daniel has to say, is it? Because if that was the only truth that we looked at today, when faced with impossible situations, when faced with things that are beyond our control, we would just simply say, well, I'm incapable, you're incapable, and so you know what? There's no hope. But what did Daniel say? Go back to the passage again. Let's look at his reply to the king one more time. Verse 28, Daniel says, king, no one can do what you're asking we have our limitations, but there is a God in heaven. Amen, praise the Lord, right? Just right there, there is a God in heaven. And what can he do? He can reveal this mystery where we are limited in our knowledge and abilities. Church, family, God, do you believe this? God is not limited in his knowledge and ability. Can I get an amen to that? This is what exiles need to hear. This is what we need to comfort our hearts with when faced with what seems like an impossible situation. Where the Babylonian wise men fail, Daniel succeeded. Why? Because he knew this to be true. He had seen it already in his own life, how God could provide, how God can care, how God is not limited in what he is able to do. I believe it's why Daniel and his friends didn't flip out and panic when Ariok came and said, um, hey, guess what? I'm here to kill you. Instead, Daniel says, it just, it sounds very casual. He's like, why is the king so worked up about this? Like, take a breather, ask him if I can have some time, because Daniel knows his God. Jeremiah, who is a prophet, who was a contemporary of Daniel, he said this in Jeremiah 32, 27, when speaking for the Lord, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? That's a rhetorical question, by the way. What's the answer? No, nothing is too hard for him. In fact, look back at Daniel's prayer. Daniel's prayer, in, starting in verse 20, says this, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, whom belong wisdom and might. Why is God not limited in his ability and knowledge? Because he has all the wisdom. Verse 21, he says he has all the power. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets kings up. The turning of the tide, the changing of the seasons, he's over that. Why did he believe that he would succeed in this impossible task where others has failed? Because Daniel knew that he was all that in a bag of chips. Is that what he believed? No. He believed in the power of his God. 
You see, church, here's something that our hearts need to rest in. And I ask, do you believe this? God is able to supply what we need. Daniel's writing to people in captivity, exiles, who potentially were lacking, who potentially felt like the resources weren't going to be available to them to get through. As they hear that, as we hear that, we hear this story and we look at it and we say, God is able to supply what we need. And it's not just that he's able to supply what we need because he has all the wisdom and he has all the power. Daniel went directly to the source. He went to God because he knew that he had it. But listen to what he said. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. It's not just simply that God has what we need. It's that he gives it, which is why we need to proclaim to our hearts this truth. When faced with those things where we recognize fully our insufficiency, we must go to God with our needs. We must go to God with our needs. In this situation, Daniel didn't look to his training. His friends didn't look to their training. They recognized what was before them, and they said, we've met our limitations, but our God is unlimited, and so we're going to go to him. He not only can supply our needs, but, but he invites us. He wants us to go to him. We don't know for certain, church, what God will do for us, but what we do know is that he's not hindered in what he can do. And what we do know is that he wants us to go to him. In this situation, Daniel and his friends needed a wisdom that was beyond their wisdom. And God granted that to them. But you know that even today as the people of God, he still invites us to go to him. James chapter one, for those of you who've been around the church, you should know this verse. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. Wisdom and power and might belong to the Lord. And the promise for the people of God is that God wants to supply that for us. We don't try and just plow through a situation. When we're faced with our needs, we go to God with our needs. And Paul would write to the church in Philippians, in Philippi, these words. Philippians 4.19, like if you don't have this memorized, it's a goodie. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. We can look at the God that Daniel served, and friends, he is our God as well. He's there to supply. We go to him with our needs. But then there's something that this story tells us. When you trust in yourself, when you believe in your capabilities, the pagan rulers or the pagan wise men of Babylon, they knew by trusting in themselves, it was only going to lead to their death. And one of the things this story shows us and the rest of the Bible unfolds is this, trusting in God and not ourselves leads to salvation. When the people of God trust in him and not in themselves, it leads to salvation. For the wise men, trusting in themselves was only going to lead to death because they were faced with their limitations. Daniel knew that. Daniel turned to God, and it was salvation for him, for his friends, and for the people of Babylon. That truth doesn't change. As long as humanity believes that we can 
save ourselves, that we can manifest things into existence. That false idea, well, it leaves us short of the glory of God. The proclamation of the Bible is the one who trusts in themselves will be brought to ruin, but the one who trusts in the Lord will be saved. And Paul would write to the Corinthian church, and he would talk about how the word of the cross in 1 Corinthians 1.18 is folly to those who are perishing. The idea that through Jesus Christ, through one man's death upon the cross, salvation can come, that doesn't seem like a great idea. That seems folly. But as Paul says, no, no, that is actually the power of God. It is what is able to save. It's not through man's wisdom, Paul goes on to say, that you can find salvation. It's only through what God provides. The question is, will you trust God's ways or will you trust your own ways? And our very first parents, Adam and Eve, they demonstrated to us the consequence of trusting in our own wisdom. That brought in sin and death and hell. God comes and he offers up his one and only son as the means of our salvation. Trusting in the work of him and him alone is the only way that we can be saved. If Daniel in this story had simply trusted in himself, it would have meant death for him and everyone else. But this is a story that proclaims to us what the rest of the Bible does. Those who trust in the Lord, who trust in what he provides, who trust in his abilities, they will be saved. And so my question to you is this. There's two groups of people that are here in the church this morning. There's one group of people that are sitting here, and what we're being confronted with is, does my life demonstrate a consistent trust and belief in what I'm able to pull off? Or does my life demonstrate and show that no matter how hard I try, there are things that I find I reach my limitations? If you can be truthful with your heart today, some of you, one of the areas where you have tried to ultimately exercise your power and your ability is to deal with your guilt and your shame, what the Bible ultimately calls your sin. And the question that I have for you this morning is you hear this story, and if there is in at least one area of your life a place where you encounter limitations, what do you think your success rate will be in trying to deal with your own sin before a holy God? The answer is failure every time. And so the invitation that comes to us from the word of God is this, trust not in your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him. So the first group, I'm just wondering, I I don't want to take this for granted. Some of you have never come to truly own up to your falling short of God's glory and saying, I am a sinner. I am someone who has tried to fix my own path to make my own way And that has led to failure. And today, I need to acknowledge that. And I need to acknowledge that apart from God interceding and trusting in what he has supplied in and through his son, Jesus Christ, there is no hope for me. And the Bible says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be what? Saved. You see, because there's another group of people here today and that's that's maybe somebody, you're like me. And, and you're in the church, and you have put your trust in God. You have seen him supply not just your salvation in and through Jesus Christ, and you take great hope in that every day that it's not my work that saves, but it's Christ's work that saves. But maybe for you, you've, you've seen in your life the fruit of anger or anxiety. Maybe you're living today in great fear of something I'm wondering, what are you holding on to today that God is saying you have 
you have ceased trusting in me for your salvation. You're faced with an impossibility that you believe that you can manipulate and control, and that's why you're gripped by fear. That's why you're gripped by anger, because something is beyond your control, and you don't like it. Learn today from Nebuchadnezzar. See what has, was born in his life, a man who, who trusted in himself, trusted in the things that he surrounded himself with. We, as followers of Jesus Christ, if we've come to the cross once, we come back to it time and time again, saying, when I think upon Christ, I see my insufficiency, and I see the sufficiency of Jesus. And see, there's one more point to this. If in the midst of all of this and what you've heard today, if you're that person who has come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and you've seen His sufficiency, then one of the things that, that keeps us before the Lord, that keeps our focus on Him is this, Praise is the only right response to God's provision. Why do we gather for worship? Why do we sing his praise? Daniel shows us when God answered the prayer of Daniel, Daniel didn't go run off right to Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel stopped and he praised God. And so here's what I want to invite you to do this morning. Would you bow your heads with me? As you bow your heads with me, as we come before our God, I don't know which of these truths that the Lord wants to work in you. The spirit that he gives us as a security of, of the salvation that is in us. I, I don't know how the spirit would speak in your heart and mind, but in hearing the word of God this morning, for some of us here, you might need to go before the Lord and say, Lord, I know that I am a sinner. I am someone who has tried to rule my own life, and the anger and anxiety in my life is an indication that I have never come to trust in you. Lord, I confess that I need you and you alone in order to save. I can only find that salvation through your son, Jesus Christ, so I believe and trust in the work that he has done for me. Some of you need to pray that Others of us right here, right now, today need to confess, Lord, there is anger in my life. There is anxiety in my life. Lord, I will give lip service to the fact that I have my limitations, but I'm not functioning like that, Lord. Forgive me. Forgive me for believing that I have some amount of power and control and ability. Lord, all my situations are impossible apart from you. Thank you, Lord, that you provide for me what I need, that as I turn to you, I can, I can trust in you. Maybe some of you need to just pray that prayer right now. But then, Lord, as I come before you, all of us today can look at our lives and can see areas and places where you have worked, where you have moved. And so, Father, the only right response to your provision is praise. And so we want to thank you today. We want to praise you that, Lord, your wisdom is greater than man's wisdom. And the full manifestation of your wisdom was the display of your son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. And so, Father, for those of us who have taken hold by the faith that you provide of that great and glorious gift of Jesus today, we praise your name and would ask you that as a church we would go forward in great hope and confidence and faced in, the, in those situations that, that we can't control, that we have you, a God who will supply our needs according to your will and for your glory and our good. And so we ask this and we pray these things in Christ's name and all God's people said, amen.